Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer here with a staff discussion of the 2023 BA Top 100 Prospects just released on the website today. The culmination of really years worth of work, uh, reporting, scouting, writing about these players, doing some deep data dives. Uh, it's a big day. Anytime we release the Top 100, one of the, the most fun days for us here at Baseball America. And to break down the 2023 Top 100, I'm joined by J.J. Cooper, Jeff Ponce, and Carlos Colazzo, all of whom contribute to making the list uh, as well as myself and some others. Guys, this was certainly uh, an interesting year to put together a top 100. Uh, J.J., I want to start with you because you are the longest tenured staff member here at Baseball America. You've been at BA over 20 years, so you kind of are able to lend the best perspective on this. How does this group of prospects here in 2023 compare to, say, prospect crops from other years? So, by the way, Matt Eddy, Matt Eddy does have me by year. So, uh, so Matt is technically the uh, the longest tenured. I, I, although this is, I believe, my twenty first top hundred that I've at least been slightly connected to. The first years they did not. They let me in the room as long as it was like being a child. Is you're allowed in, just don't speak. Just kind of sit there and like you can listen to the adults have the conversation. But eventually, they let me open my mouth as well. Uh, but. Uh, I would describe this as a 50 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. It's not the, it's not the best top hundred as far as depth, as far as top of the list. It's not the worst either. Uh, I don't think it's by any means the worst, but I would say it's not one of those years. If you said, okay, well, JJ, what's an 80? I'd probably go back just a few years. I remember when we had like, do we like Ronald Acuna or Shoei Otani at number one? And it's like, yes. Vlad Jr., yes. Fernando Tatis, sure. Like, I mean, it was like there were a couple of years there where you were like, this is about as good. And even last year, I don't know about the depth last year, but last year we had three guys at the top of this list, Adley Rushman, Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt Jr., who any one of them, we said at the time, that this is a number one prospect. You put this guy at the top of a, a list, you in no way feel like in any order of those three guys that you'd be like, oh, it's kind of not the best top 100 we've done, not the best number one. I would say if you had those three guys still eligible right now, Bobby Witt Jr. versus Gunnar Henderson, they played the same position. That would be at least an interesting debate. I would probably say Bobby Witt Jr., but that's an interesting debate. Adley Rushman versus Gunnar Henderson, I'm taking Adley Rushman. So I would say from that standpoint, it's an average top 100, but an average top 100 is a pretty good top 100. And I do feel like that the top of this list, we have a lot of close to the majors guys who are going to make an impact pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's the key thing here I thought was interesting as we put together our list and sent it around to front office officials all around the game just to get general feedback about how the industry sees things. One of the things that really jumped out is Gunnar Henderson of the Orioles at number one, Corbin Carroll of the Diamondbacks at number two. It was consensus. Every member of our of our staff had them one, two. And when we sent the list out to front office officials, it was unanimous. Yeah, those are the top two prospects in the game. The debates really started around number three, four. Uh, Jeff, you've seen a lot of Gunnar Henderson. Um, I've done a lot of work on Corbin Carroll. Carlos, you saw both these guys as amateurs. 
Um, when you look at these two prospects, you know, what stands out for you guys that made them the clear cut numbers one and two and, and industry wide as well? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me when I'm looking at really any prospect, but, you know, when you're talking about that upper echelon, that upper tier is having that variety, that wide range of average or better tools with a handful, a handful, but a, a few plus or better tools. And I think when you look at Carol, you look at Gunnar Henderson, um, there really aren't too many things to nitpick. They're both excellent runners. They're both valuable fielders. And then you go to the plate. They're guys that make contact Carol a little bit more than Gunner. They both hit for power Gunner a little bit more than Carol. They both don't really chase and have really advanced plate approach for young players. Um, and I tend to think that when you look at a package like that uh, in terms of a skill set, a tool set, those are guys that are going to hit the ground running. Uh, and we saw that sort of, you know, at the end, the tail end of last season, which certainly helps to sort of um, solidify some of those feelings. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's a, a little bit of, uh, you know, our own uh, recency bias or whatever, but, it, you know, it was nice. We had them one, two uh, middle of the season and, you know, we stayed consistent throughout. I think it's because, you know, they're well-balanced players with those sort of skill sets where there's not really a whole lot to nitpick in the game. Yeah, I, I look at Gunnar Henderson. That's what really stands out to me. It's there's just not really a weakness there. He can hit. He can hit for power. You see a good approach, plays good defense, has an arm, good athlete. There's really not a hole in his game. And and you just watched him play in the big leagues last year. Some of the at-bats he was taking, especially end of the year, looked like he'd been there for years. There was no nothing overwhelmed him. And that's something else that's come up with him is the poise, the maturity, and the effort level as well. Um, this is a guy that you feel good about is going to get the most from his tools. And, and Corbin Carroll, different type of player. Um, you know, one of the big things we have to see is he's he's a smaller guy. He's always had power for his size. A lot of his home run production was a product of being an Amarillo and Reno. But at the very least, you see a guy who projects to make a lot of contact, can absolutely fly, is going to rack up doubles and triples, really good defender in the outfield, can play center. But Alec Thomas is also a really good center fielder. If he goes to left, he's going to be one of the best left fielders in baseball. So two guys at the very least who can make an impact in a number of ways at the plate, on defense, on the base pass. And Carlos, I want to kick this over to you. Both these guys were members of the 2019 draft class. And interestingly, neither of them were taken in the top half of the 2019 draft. Uh, Corbin Carroll fell to 16th overall with the D-backs. Gunnar Henderson was the top pick of the second round that year. What are your mm -hmm. memories of these two guys as they were coming up as amateurs in high school and what teams saw in them then and then how they've blossomed since? Yeah, I remember at the time, Corbin Carroll would have been solidly ahead of Gunnar um, for most people in the industry. I think we had him somewhere in the middle of the first round on talent. And what always stood out to me about Corbin Carroll, and even still to this day, I don't think there's a an amateur prospect or a high school hitter specifically that has shown his ability to control the zone, his pitch recognition. Uh, I don't think I ever saw him swing at a bad pitch on the high school showcase circuit. Um, he would constantly spit on balls right off the plate, just happily take his walks. And then even then, he was a smaller guy, but he was strong. He was well-built at the time. Uh, I think even back then there were some questions about smaller hitters. Uh, I don't think the maybe the bias against those smaller hitters had, had gone away to the extent that I really don't think it's much of an issue now if, if you're showing the ability to hit and drive the ball with authority. Um, so he was viewed solidly as a first-rounder. I think Gunner might be even the most interesting one, especially when we're talking about him as the number one prospect on our list compared to a Bobby Witt Jr. from last year who could have easily been the top prospect on the class at the time in high school, no one would have had these two players in the same league. 
I mean, Bobby Wood Jr.'s tools, uh, his advanced feel for the game on both sides of the ball um, were just significantly better. So I think it's a, a testament to Gunner's skill, um, the quality of the scouting and the player identification that the Orioles did, and also their player development, because I think he has gotten significantly better since getting into the Orioles system. Um, I don't think he was just a guy who maybe was underrated at the time. Maybe in hindsight, he was underrated, but I think a lot of it is just the improvement that you continue to see from him in pro ball. And I really think now, um, considering some of the swing and miss questions you, you might still have with Bobby Wood Jr., they're a lot closer than I think people might expect even still today. Like if you wanted to say that you had more confidence in Gunner hitting uh, and hitting for more impact, I don't think that's crazy. Um, it's just funny to think about now comparing them and contrasting them back in 2018. They've come a long way. Yeah, and I think first and foremost, you have to give credit to the kid himself. You know, that's one of the things that's come up with Gunner. And, and we talk about makeup so much and why it's important. It's about putting in the work to get better, being coachable, making sure you're doing the right things in the weight room in terms of your nutrition. And by all accounts, Gunner Henderson is just, you know, A pluses across the board in that regard. And you see it even the way he plays. He plays hard, he's focused, he's dialed in. Um, it's the mental component is there as well as the physical component, and it kind of feeds into each other. And again, these are two really, really talented prospects. Both reached the majors last year. Both will graduate off of our BA top 100 very, very quickly. And that kind of leads us into this next group. Um, you know, going in, we as a staff had Jackson Churio pretty solidly number three, but there are a lot of people in the industry who felt that, you know, maybe there were some other players who, who belonged up there instead of him. I want to dive into the group of pitchers we have who ultimately fell just outside of our top three, but are solidly in the middle of the top 10. That's Philly's right-hander, Andrew Painter, Orioles right-hander, Grayson Rodriguez, and Marlins right-hander, Yuri Perez. Uh, generally speaking, the consensus top three pitching prospects in the game um, is an interesting debate. You know, it came out Painter fairly solidly ahead, but you could find people who preferred Grayson Rodriguez, Rodriguez and Perez. There was a lot of debate. Um, so a couple different organizations have these guys in different orders. We ultimately had it Painter, Rodriguez, Perez, back to back to back. Uh, JJ, I'll start back with you again. You've seen a lot of really, really, really talented teenage or, or 20-year-old pitchers make their way through the low minors, get to double A and impress, but then hit a wall or something goes sideways. Uh, we were just talking about, you know, the Force Whitley or even to a degree Mackenzie Gore, Jesus Lazardo were top 10 pitching prospects who everyone loved. They have not lived up to that thus far in their young big league careers. What is it about these three that stands out so much? And, and realistically, what are the odds these guys are able to kind of be the exception and break through and, and not break people's hearts as pitching prospects so often do? They are pitching prospects. So there always is that concern. Rick Ankiel, I'll use that as an example because Rick Ankiel, number one on this list now over 20 years ago, he was everything that you could want in a pitching prospect. And I mean pretty much everything. And he did it at the major league level. And then one day he just lost it. Like, and boom, he's done. Now, to his credit, he made it back to the big leagues as an outfielder. But if you want an example, it wasn't an injury. It wasn't that his, it, it just was, he lost the ability to throw strikes. There are so many more off-ramps for a pitcher than there are for a hitter. When we talk about injuries, when we talk about injuries over the last 10 years, I really struggle to come up with top 10 ranked position players who you're like, oh, Maybe we could say Cody Bellinger's career has been really destroyed or damaged so far by injury, but he also, it damaged him after he was like one of the best players in the game for a couple of years. Um, Jerks and Profar's career has been limited because of injury. He was a top prospect. 
you can find examples. But then if you said pitchers, we could just sit here and go on all day. I mean, Alex Reyes and Forrest Whitley, and we could just Mike Soroka. Mike Soroka did everything that you wanted to early on in his career. His elbow's fine. His shoulder's fine. He's blown out his Achilles twice. How many position players have had, you know, multiple Achilles injuries in their career? So there's just so much more, so many more things that can go wrong. So we don't want to say this like, oh, no, no, Andrew Painter, it can't go this way. By the way, someone, Jeff, thank you. Jeff, Jake Berger Berger. is an example. Jake Berger is an example of a first rounder who did have multiple Achilles injuries. It does happen to position players too. But but what we are talking about here is, is with pitchers is we can't say that Andrew Painter has no he's he's durable there's no chance he'll get hurt or Yuri Perez or Grayson Rodriguez. Grayson Rodriguez missed significant time last year. But what we can say about these players and what we reflects on our rankings are these are the pitchers who we survey around Major League Baseball, we talk to scouts, we talk to front office officials, we talk to analysts, whoever, we talk to coaches, and everyone's like, these are the guys, and they are guys who, Andrew Painter doesn't have to improve dramatically. He has to improve, but he doesn't have to improve dramatically to be a successful big league pitcher. Yuri Perez, Grayson Rodriguez don't have to improve dramatically. The tricky part of pitchers, and I'll kind of end it with this is, but sometimes they also back up. And so the fear you also have is, is will these guys be as good as they are right now in five years? Because with pitchers, that's never a guarantee. Turning it back to the positive side. Um, Andrew Painter, clearly a guy that, again, whenever you just watch him, whether it's in person, on video, he's one of those guys you watch him, you say, wow, you see the stuff, you see the delivery, you see the command, you see the poise. And as I talked about with Chris Trankel on our Phillies podcast, He's durable. A lot of times high school pitchers, especially, are babied in their first year. The Phillies sent him out. He threw 100, over 100 innings, which is really, really good for a high schooler in his first professional year. Was pitching six, seven innings deep into games late in the year. And look, a big part of being an ace is being durable. Going out throwing five innings, you're not an ace. You have to be able to throw seven, eight, nine even. Jeff, you got a lot. You got to see Andrew Payne out in the Eastern League. Uh, you've done a lot of work on him, and you tend to be more of a a pitching specialist. I myself am more of a position player guy, but you love pitching and pitchers. Uh, what for you kind of separates Andrew Painter um, from, from the rest? And again, Grace Rodriguez and your prayers are excellent, but I did think it was interesting that, again, not unanimously, but for the most part, there was a, a general view that, yes, Painter is the number one pitching prospect in the game, even above those guys. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, with all three of these guys, there's a reasonable case to be made for every single one of them for different reasons. And you know, when I sort of break it down and I have, I was fortunate enough to see all these, uh, all three of these guys pitch live uh, this year. Um, and, you know, I, I think the thing that I come away with with Painter is it's not just the stuff. It's not just the physicality because he is a bigger guy. He's got a ton of athleticism for a bigger guy. He moves really well on the mound, which I think is always something you have to look at um, because so much of pitching and these pitching prospects and what they turn into is, sort of the elements that sort of make them up, right? Because with pitchers, we don't really see that final push of development until year two or three, often in the major leagues. It's not, there are very few pitchers that come up and are ready-made from day one um, as minor leaguers, but even the best ones, you know, um, we can see even the growth that maybe an Alec Manoa made year over year and 
he's about as ready as you could have been uh, coming into 2021. Um, I look at Painter. This guy has, you know, elite fastball shape. He gets a ton of ride. Um, so he checks all those sort of modern analytical boxes. Huge velocity. He sits 96 to 97. He can ramp it up even harder when he needs to. Um, he's got a, a great slider, sweepy slider. But the thing for – and a pretty good changeup. But the thing for me about Painter that I like the most is he just consistently – goes after hitters. There was no pitching out of the zone. There was no trying to avoid contact. Often it seemed as if he was trying to, you know, go in on lefty's hands, uh, attack up high. And it seemed like throughout the starts that I watched, he had a good idea of what the opposing hitters weaknesses were. Um, And even the second time through, if he saw a guy struggle with a breaking ball, I think it was Daniel Montano from, you know, the Rockies, his double A affiliate. He went after him three times with a slider in the second at bat because he saw in that third pitch, when he struck him out in the first at bat, that he got him to swing. And it was like that, those sort of adjustments where it's like, all right, he's thinking about what he's doing. And, you know, it's not just going out there and throwing. And I think when we talk about the old cliche of a thrower versus a pitcher, that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for a guy who's going to get deep into starts, knows the best way to attack a hitter. And sometimes that's not necessarily striking a guy out. It might be, you know, getting him to swing underneath your fastball at the top of the zone and driving a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of pop-ups. I mean, other, I mean, even better than ground balls and strikeouts. Like if you can get a pop-up on the first pitch of every single at bat, you'd go really deep into starts and you probably wouldn't give up too many runs. I'm just saying. So, you know, it's one of those things where the, where he attacked in the zone, where he attacked with his fastball, how he sequenced, I just like slightly better than Yuri Perez, Grayson Rodriguez. When we talk about the stuff, the depth of the, of the pitch arsenal, he probably has the, the most above average to plus pitches of these three. He's not as good of a mover. I think there's a little bit more body concerns, and we obviously saw some of the, the health stuff this year, unfortunately. But this is this is quite a talented trio. Carlos, I want to go back to last year's draft with Andrew Painter. It was interesting because I actually remember he got off to a little bit of a slow start, and he entered the year, again, a big name. A lot of people liked uh, as a high schooler. Got off to a little bit of a slow start, and people started to you know, knock him down a little bit. He finished the year really, really strong, and – the Phillies were able to get him in the middle of the first round. And, and I remember talking to some evaluators post-draft. They said, you know, everyone was super high on Jackson Job. He was the big riser for this year, went third overall. But I still think Andrew Painter is the better pitcher. He just got off to a slow start. And as we've seen here in their first year in Pro Brawl, Andrew Painter just took off at a different level. Hmm. What was your view of Andrew Painter out of the draft last year? And, and how did teams view him? And really, how did the Phillies end up getting a steal like him in the back half of the first round? Yeah, it's interesting because I think Andrew Painter and McAble both had a lot of similarities at the same time coming out of high school. Um, to your point, Andrew Painter was the top high school prospect coming out of the summer showcase circuit. Um, everything he did there between the size, he was a really projectable, tall frame, strong, good athleticism. He showed a four-pitch mix, the fastball missed bats, and the changeup was really um, kind of that fourth pitch that I feel like put him over uh, kind of over the edge for most evaluators. You really didn't have many obvious holes. Uh, I know people who were nitpicking him at the time wondered about the quality of the secondary stuff. The slider and the curveball could be inconsistent. And then during the spring, like you mentioned, Jackson Job really rocketed up boards very quickly. Obviously, during the summer, he was a two-way player who jumped on the mound and showed a disgusting 3,000 RPM breaking ball that was probably the best breaking pitch in the draft class. People were really excited about the two-way potential as he kind of stopped playing shortstop, focused more on pitching. And he did show a lot of improvement in the spring. He added a changeup that most scouts were telling me 
was a plus pitch at the time. So you're looking at a really athletic former two-way player who's throwing maybe a plus fastball, a double plus breaking ball. Now he's got a plus changeup, and you think the control is going to get better. It's, it's not shocking to see why he shot up. I think you mentioned it. Andrew Painter struggled out of the gate during his um, spring season in Florida. And I think one of the questions, or there were two questions. One was the fastball was getting critiqued. Uh, there were scouts who didn't think that the, the fastball was playing as well as they would have expected. So to Jeff's point about how it's playing well really now, and it has that kind of elite ride and carry, I think is a great uh, maybe developmental piece to note about him because I don't know that he always naturally had that shape, or maybe he made a few adjustment adjustments um, after that spring season to improve the quality of the fastball. Uh, and then also the slider has gotten a lot better he was a guy who had solid breaking balls. And I think maybe this is a critique that a lot of the top pitching prospects get. Um, Dylan Lesko got this at sometimes last spring as well. Um, when you do everything really well, and maybe your curveball and slider uh, aren't your best pitches on any given day, I think they can be critiqued a lot. But as we've seen, teams are really good at just developing pitches and helping you get the most out of your stuff. And, and Painter simply got better um, from that spring. Maybe he chose the wrong time to struggle a little bit in those first few looks in Florida, because those are important not only because they're the, the first outings for your season, but there are also a lot of high-level evaluators who are down in Florida specifically. Uh, and maybe it's a case that it just wasn't as loud as scouts wanted to see considering his summer, and he never could kind of climb back from that. But the Phillies took advantage, and they've certainly capitalized from it. Yeah, it's funny. Every year we hear about that, you know, especially warm-weather states, some guys, cross-checkers, high-level folks, going and see a guy at the start of the season in February. And again, it's the start of the season. Plenty of guys are working off the cobwebs but they're not sharp. And those same cross checkers and high level guys never circle back. And Mm -hmm. as a result, they miss on guys. It happens every single year. And another guy who had the same thing happen, I feel like is James Wood and maybe we'll touch on him, but, but he's another great example of basically having that exact path. Great in the summer, struggled a little bit early in the spring, fell down boards. And now he looks pretty phenomenal. Happens every year. There's always guys and just goes to show it's, it's never made sense to me why you're judging guys off their first outing or two of the season. Like, of course, guys are going to be a little rusty and not in their prime form, but that's a side rant. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is again, this prospect group, it's, it's, it's fine. It's not great. It's certainly down from last year and down from some of the, the great prospect props we've seen. JJ mentioned, you know, that 2018 group, even the 2017 group was really, really good too. Um, but one area of strength here is the young shortstops. There's a really, really interesting group of shortstops who, for the most part, are, are on the lower levels. Uh, one of them has touched double A, but you go down here toward the back of the top 10 to the early teens, and you have this really interesting group where it starts with Ellie De La Cruz. You have Marcelo Meyer. You have Jordan Lawler. You have Anthony Volpe. You have Jackson Holiday. You have Ezekiel Tovar. I mean, half dozen really good shortstops all kind of packed together here. It is probably the strength of this prospect group. Uh, JJ, again, I'll start with you because, again, your perspective is always really, really useful here. And come on, you're dropping Rick Ankiel references. I love it. Um, when you look at this shortstop group, what do you make of it? Because, again, it's all very, very low level. Only Volpe and De La Cruz. Well, Lawler did touch double A, but Volpe and De La Cruz are the only players with significant playing time above the class A level so far amongst this group, or Tovar as well, I should say. I, the thing I would say about it is is I when we talk about draft demographics, we talk about prospect demographics, one of the really good demographics to look at, one of the ones that's that's pretty safe, we talk about the volatility of high school players. We were just talking about pitchers and I feel like I was basically Debbie Downer there on. Yeah, they get hurt. Yeah. They, you can't quite, you can't trust them, whatever. 
But I would say with this is, is the flip side of that is, is when you talk about high school shortstops, when you talk about international shortstops who are showing the ability both defensively and offensively at a young age, there are so many great outcomes for those players. They don't have to stick at shortstop to be really good. They don't have to be middle of the order bats if they're that good defensively to be really good. I look at this group and you say, and, and, and we got some guys at the back of this list also who, who are kind of impressive this way too. But you look at this loop group and you say, these are young up the middle defenders who in most of these cases are also the main reason that they rank as high as they do is because of their offensive potential as well. Now, some of these guys may end up moving to second. They may move to third. They may move to the outfield in some cases. But if you can hit and have the athleticism to play shortstop every day, even in the minors, you have a whole lot of potential positive outcomes that come from that. And I look at this group. There are guys here with some risk. Ellie De La Cruz is, is both fascinating and frightening because – you can, if you want to emphasize the, the the positive, this guy is a truly special athlete. This is a guy I, we can't say anymore that no one else at his height can play shortstop because O'Neill Cruz did play shortstop in the majors last year. But there aren't five guys in the history of professional baseball who've played it and played it consistently at his height. But you say with that, like on top of that, by the way, his hand of an arm, by the way, he can run, by the way, he's a switch hitter. By the way, he hits balls as far as almost anybody. He has all those great attributes. And then you say, oh, by the way, he also does strike out 31% of the time. Wait, what? 31%? Yeah, that's a concern. That's going to have to get better. But he's fascinating for that way. Then you go to the other side of it. You got a guy like Anthony Volpe who... Anthony Volpe is going to be the, the thing I fear for him is Yankees fans want Anthony Volpe to be to be Jeets. I mean, they basically you like fear Yankees just, fans just, for Volpe. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you know, it's like, oh, he, yeah, he's he's good. He he should be one of the best shortstop of all time, right? Like that's what we have. And I, and Anthony Volpe is a really good player. Like the thing I'd say about Anthony Volpe is I think he's a very high floor player. I think that he is someone who has shown he has great aptitude for the game, does a lot of things well. I don't think there's a lot of eights or sevens on that scouting report, but there's a lot of fives and sixes. And that makes you, if you're that and you are at the upper levels of the minors, if you have a history of performance and you play shortstop, that makes you one of the better prospects in the game. It's a fascinating group after we get past that that top group, which by the way, Gunnar Henderson, number one, I don't know if he's going to be a, a shortstop or a third baseman long-term, I'd probably say third baseman, but he might play shortstop for quite a while as well. I, I want to put this to the group kind of a round table here. Cause again, this group of shortstops, we all had them in different orders on our personal top 100s and we submitted them sending it around for feedback around the game. A lot of front office officials, GMs, assistant GMs, scouting directors, guys with really good track records of being a right. They all have them in a bunch of different orders. So it's, it's very, very close. I want to ask of this middle group, not not counting Gunnar Henderson, but this group of De La Cruz, Meyer, Lawler, Holiday, Volpe, Tovar. Who's the guy that you feel best about and, and you would take? Just just a name right now. We'll get the explanations later. JJ, who are you taking? I think I go Holiday, right? If you say long term, I may say Holiday. Jeff, how about you? 
Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm going holiday on this one too. And it seems like the feedback that we've gotten uh, almost on the daily, it seems like I get more and more excited about this guy. I know that Carlos and I had had a conversation about something else. Well, hold on, hold on. We'll get the full explanation later. Right now, I just want names. <laughs> Carlos, who you got? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I had I had Lawler first on my personal list with Marcelo right behind. So I think I'd, I'd just stick with that and say Lawler for now. Yeah, you know, I I went back and forth on this one a lot. I think anyone who's listened to the podcast knows I have been a president of the Marcelo Meyer fan club for the West better Coast part of four or five years. Um, <laughs> hey, whenever, when, as soon as I saw him playing <laughs> shortstop as a freshman at Eastlake High School on the varsity, like that doesn't happen. Like, it's always fun to me. You hear about people talking about, oh, he's a four-year varsity starter at these Midwest or East Coast schools. Like, that doesn't happen at Southern California Powers because just because you're a future D1 player, guess what? There's another future D1 player who's a senior playing the position already. Um, when I walked in and saw him starting at shortstop for Eastlake as a freshman, I was like, whoa. And then watching him play, I was like, yeah, this guy's really good. Um, watching Jordan Lawler in the Cal League a lot this year, um, just the combination, the speed, the bat speed, the power, um, the ability to change a game, the athleticism. Again, does he stay at shortstop? Does he move to center field? We'll see. But I ended up going Lawler as as my top guy um, of this group with Meyer right behind him. I just think the two of them have a combination of, of ability to hit and, and athleticism and defense and a Lawler. Um, like I mentioned, just the athleticism to play anywhere up the middle. Myers is such a beautiful, silky, smooth shortstop. Um, it, it's a pleasure to watch. And even if he moves to third base, I think he's Eric Chavez and a you know franchise cornerstone who hits for average and wins gold gloves. So those are my top two. Um, so I kind of gave my explanation for why I think that. I want to go around JJ and Jeff. You guys picked Jackson Holiday, and, and some context behind this. Uh, Holiday, the number one overall pick in this year's draft, consistently got rave reviews throughout the spring. Uh, the Orioles increasingly got tied to him. I reported on that a few months before it happened, and we nailed it as uh, him being number one overall pick. Kudos, Carlos. Um, and then it just seemed like he continued to get better and better in pro ball. Again, got better all throughout the spring. Showed up in pro ball, very small sample, but everything he showed there had people really, really excited. And, and again, as we sent out our top 100 just for feedback around the game, he was the most sided move up guy. We had him ranked pretty highly to begin with, um, but people around the game unanimously are very, very excited about him. Uh, JJ and Jeff, what for you makes him the guy you'd pick above all others in this group? Yeah, I mean, I, as I was saying before, um, even prior to us getting some of the feedback from GM's AGM front office folks, um, Carlos and I were working on something else, having a conversation. I came in thinking Drew Jones was, you know, the top guy from that draft. And Carlos was like, you know, I'm starting to get feedback that it's that it's holiday. And then over the next week, we just had more and more feedback that was rolling in. When I separated out, I just I just look at the numbers with holiday versus even the other sort of stops that we're mentioning. Um, he hits the ball hard. He hits the ball hard at good angles in terms of, um, you know, that sort of barrel, we'll say, centric launch angle area between like 10 and 30 degrees. Uh, which is typically optimal, makes contact, rarely ever chases. And then you think about um, the success that we've seen with similar types of players, maybe who were more raw coming out of the, the you know, the prep ranks uh, as draft picks with the Orioles. This organization has done a really good job of sort of accentuating the positives within this type of a profile. Um, so even beyond the player, even beyond the feedback, I'm kind of buying in just because of the organization as well, which is always a key component of, these guys really 
maturing, you know, and, and finding success in the major leagues is, you know, who's doing the coaching and, and who's sort of driving the bus behind him. JJ, how about you? It, kind of along the same lines, like we, the feedback we have gotten post draft on holiday and the swing, the, the bat speed, the chance to be an impact player on both sides of the ball. It just, we just get, keep getting such positive feedback. I did not have holiday best on this group right now for the top hundred. And I wouldn't like, if that question's that I wouldn't put holiday there because he has a pro track record that is thinner than a, uh, you know, than a, than a pamphlet. Whereas we have other guys on this list who have, I mean, look at Ellie De La Cruz. We just talked about him 31% strikeout rate. Sure. But also a guy who, who basically was flirting with 30, 30 as a, one of the youngest players at every level he played talk about Lawler you talk about Mike these guys have done it Tovar you know made it to the majors these guys have done it a lot further but if you ask me what we are talking about as far as like long term it would not surprise me if a year from now we're having this discussion hopefully we're all back here same time same place and we're talking about this and we're going and here's why Jackson Holiday is the number one prospect in baseball and which by the way if that happened that would be the first time ever that we've ever had a team go back to back to back three years in a row with the number one prospect. And even more so we've never had, this is only the second time that any team has ever gone back to back with different players. We've had two time number ones, but the fact that Adley was number one last year, that Gunner was number one this year, the only other time that happened, I'm going to bring up Rick Ankeel for the second time in this podcast, no JD way. drew and Rick Ankeel at the end of the 1990s. So it, it is very unusual to see no one had ever done it before this year, by the way, from one draft class either. The fact that Adley and Gunner were in the same draft class makes it a great draft right there. If you were done, dusted, nothing else in that draft class, it would be a great draft. And what's terrifying about Jackson Holiday too, is just physically, he's going to be a monster. If, if you guys haven't seen him, or if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't go look at some video of Jackson Holiday. I mean, the summer prior to this draft, so last, what would that have been, 2021 summer? I'm going crazy right now. But um, he was he was frequently cited as a guy who could shoot up in the spring because he just had such a projectable body, big feet, big hands. You see his dad. He obviously has the bloodlines of, of a of really impressive big leaguer. He started getting into some of that strength, and he's not physically mature yet. He's not peaked. He's already hitting the ball extremely hard as an 18-year-old in his pro debut. Next year, he's only 19 he has this foundation of approach and contact and power and defensive ability. He's a left-handed hitter. He has bloodlines. He he could be terrifying if he starts to get a little bit more physical, add some more power, layers on that strength to those skills. Yeah, I think he's a he's going to be a very popular pick for number one prospect a year from now as we sit here today. Yeah, and as we talked about, the son of former all-star outfielder Matt Holliday, who's got the bloodlines, and he also has the guy in his corner who will tell him, hey, here's what you have to do. Here's what it takes to reach the majors, be successful in the majors. Having that guidance is so, so, so huge, and a big part of why we see so many standout sons of old uh, old all-stars or big leaguers now making their way to the majors because having that mental understanding, that component is very, very key. Guys, I want to jump into um, a group of pitchers here that kind of checked in below the shortstops. Um I've written about this a lot, just doing research and being interested in the findings and diving deep into it. You know, we talked about the consensus trio of pitchers at the top of this group uh, with Andrew Painter, Grayson Rodriguez, and Yuri Perez. 
It's two high school draftees and an international signee. And what we have found again and again and again, and this is becoming more and more concentrated in today's game, in this era, is the best pitchers, the true aces, are overwhelmingly college draftees. Overwhelmingly, you can, it's very difficult to find um, a high school draftee at all. Zach Wheeler is probably the one guy right now. And international signings are a little bit more successful, but it's overwhelmingly college pitchers who end up becoming the best big leaguers. And once you get into the 20s, this group, that's where you start to have our group of college draftees, Gavin Williams, Bobby Miller, Brandon Fott, who's been a, a big fast riser, Hunter Brown, and a guy who's who's different, but also the idea of, you know, an older guy who's, you know, pitched at higher levels, more proven, Kodai Senga coming over from the Mets. You know, history tells us as much as Andrew Painter and Grace Rodriguez and Yuri Perez are getting a ton of love right now, and deservedly so, one of these guys is probably actually going to end up being the best pitcher in this class when we look back, or maybe it's someone further down. Um, but of this group that is generally considered to be the best of, you know, kind of the older demographic, the, the college slash established international signees, not amateur international signees. Who do you guys prefer here? Because, again, it's really interesting sending the feedback all around, you know, the different answers between Gavin Williams, Hunter Brown, Bobby Miller. It really depended on who you asked and in some cases when you asked them. <laughs> JJ, let's start with you. How, how do yeah, you see this so, group, and, and who do you who, who really? By the way, I, I would point out Dylan Cease and Max Fried last year were repping the uh, the high school class very well. That is so very we true. We are seeing another wave of high school guys where maybe it's starting to, to to tweak a little bit. And we could go into a whole other podcast of just like where are the aces? Because it is kind of amazing that when you talk about the true aces with longevity, so many of these pitchers who fit that category are in the 35 plus age range now so that's a little bit of a concern like big picture as well but like when you look at this group it's like do you want the pure stuff uh, i say i'm pure stuff it's bobby miller and hunter brown probably stand out among almost anyone that you pick but that comes with some reliever risk now when we hear reliever risk these days it, it I sometimes do wonder, like, is it going to be as much reliever risk as we used to think? Because reliever risk in the old days used to be this guy can't go seven, eight, nine innings, so he'll end up being a reliever. Whereas nowadays, like, if you told me that the Astros think that Hunter Brown is best in 21, 24 batter pulses, which is kind of something that they do a lot in the minors with their tandem starter system but they say he's going to start and we want to get five innings out of him. I think that that may happen more, you know, Bobby Miller may be a guy who does that too. But if you said pure starter, I'll probably take Gavin Williams of that group, just from the standpoint, I do think he's more likely, I guess nowadays it means a guy who goes consistently six or seven. If you're in not Sandy Alcantara. Um, but like, I would say him of that group is the most starter ish of the guys. And hey, if by the way, if you don't like him as a Guardians pitching prospect, don't worry. We've got a lot of other guys in this list as well from the uh, top 100 that are Guardians pitching prospects. Jeff, you have been um, a very, very, very big proponent of Hunter Brown for a while. And I saw a good bit of him as well this year. And certainly very, very good. And the control is trending in the right direction. It's not there yet, but it's moving the way you want it to move. And it's been doing so fairly consistently. 
how much faith do you have that the control will be there for him to be not just a starter, but a good one? Because there is a bit of a divided opinion there. Yeah, I think that he's uh, certainly made strides in that regard. You look, you know, just really over the last four years, you know, since I uh, came out of Wayne State, we've, we've seen him progress really significantly in terms of his strike throwing. This year it was like a, a totally different level, especially when we factor in how difficult it is to pitch in the Pacific Coast League what the average ERA and, and numbers are in that league, even for guys who end up having major league success, it, guys get beat up in the Pacific Coast League. He handled it really well. The things that I like about Brown is, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to rely fully on one pitch. Um, though he is fastball dominant, is an, it's an excellent fastball. He misses bats with it. He also gets, for a four-seamer, gets over 50% ground balls on that pitch, which I think is kind of unique. It's something that the Astros themselves have talked about, and it's something they've talked about as uh, being a trait that they believe will allow him to potentially start. Um, then you look at he's one of the few guys that throws a curveball as hard as he throws it in the low 80s with really dynamic sort of rainbow drop. You don't typically see that from a curveball in the mid eighties, it's usually a little bit more slurvy. It's a true curveball, And then he comes in with sort of a cutter slider hybrid um, that works really well. Gets a lot of chases out of the zone. He'll throw his changeup every so often, but really it's that three pitch mix between the two breaking balls and the fastball. And he performed well. So JJ and Jeff, you guys both raised points, JJ about pitchers who consistently pitch deep into games. Jeff, you raised the point about guys uh, in the Pacific Coast League who get beat up and having it being a really difficult league. So having success there as a starter is a good indicator. The guy who does both, but seems to be the least famous of this group that we're talking about and gets the least amount of pub is Brandon Fott. And some of that is a product of his pedigree. He was a fairly unheralded draftee, uh, a fifth rounder out of Division II school at the time, Bellarmine in Kentucky. Um, by no means a guy that was super well known. Uh, but over the last two years, Brandon Fott has been one of the best pitchers in the minor leagues by any measure. Pitched at Amarillo and Reno last year, two places where pitchers go to get hammered, absolutely hammered, and was lights out. Kept runs off the board, missed bats like crazy. Um, this is a guy who, I mean, Brandon Fott struck out 218 batters last year, 33 walks, had a sub four ERA. Again, pitching in Amarillo and Reno. It was absolutely lights out, great stuff, amazing performance. And it feels like he gets lost just coming from the outside looking in and, and talking to evaluators about him. He's the guy who really there seems to be the most confidence about, yeah, this guy's really good. He's going to be a really good pitcher and a really good starting pitcher. Again, I feel like he's the least famous of these guys, but there's a real chance he's going to be the best of them. Any, any thoughts? I mean, Jeff, yeah, I'd be no, curious I, your thoughts, I, especially uh, analytically. I, I mean, you, you see it from a data standpoint. I mean, what do you see from Brandon Fott data-wise and, and what really jumps out to you? Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that I have some history with. Um, I had initially seen Brandon Fott um, on the Cape, actually, pitching for Wareham. And he's one of these guys where, and this happens every year, where there's this pitcher comes in, he's from some school you've never heard of. And, you know, I think the thing that I've learned over the years is typically, like, those are the guys I pay the most attention to. Um, Adam Mayer, uh, who ended up going to Oregon, but was from 
the University of British Columbia the first time I saw him. It's like you start to, to take some of those guys for granted. But, you know, the thing with, with thought is, um, number one, the command, obviously. There's very few guys in the game um, and in the minor leagues, you know, that have that level of command and are able to sort of navigate um, throwing their fastball high in the zone without a tremendous amount of hop um, in Amarillo and still being able to sort of navigate that without giving up an insane amount of home runs. And he is fairly, um, you know, heavy on the, on the fastball. It's a little bit flatter approach just because of the release height and some of those things. So there is some good elements to it, but when you look at it from a shape standpoint, it doesn't stand out, but then you take a look at the performance and what, what are the hitters telling you about the pitch? I mean, he's getting, he's got a 30% whiff rate on that pitch last year in the upper minors in a very tough place to pitch. He gets a heavy amount of chases. He throws it for a strike consistently. And then he's got a slider that, you know, we look at some of these stuff plus models that we have access to. Um, it grades out at 130, which is an easy plus pitch, almost double plus. Um, you know, it's a, it's a sweeper with a little bit of ride, heavy spin in the low 80s another pitch that gets a high amount of whiffs uh, and he throws a changeup and is able to land his changeup. And he actually gets more whiffs on his changeup and more chases on his changeup than he does on his slider or, or, or two, or excuse me, four seam. And he throws a curveball. He'll mix that in a little bit too. Um, but it's really more of a change of pace. It's a deep arsenal. And the thing that I like about that is he's one of these guys that, you know, everything kind of cascades off of the waterfalls off of that, that four seam fastball. And he's able to attack with a variety of different secondaries um, that keep hitters off balance. I think that's one of the reasons that he's found success. And I also think it's one of the reasons that, you know, he misses as many bats as he did. I think he had the most strikeouts, 218 strikeouts. I think it was the most in the minor leagues since 2001. So that kind of What's, tells the story. The, these, these two are really interesting as well. And I'm saying these two, Brandon Fott and Gavin Williams are interesting to me because we're talking about them as maybe some of the more likely starting pitchers of this group of guys they were both relievers at the beginning of their college career um so it's interesting just to see that transformation like jeff was saying pop maybe is one of the better strike throwers in this top 100 and kind of everything stems from that gavin williams was certainly not that pitcher and it's also interesting to me gavin's profile just with what cleveland has done historically with pitching he almost seems like a little bit of a change of pace for the type of pitcher they like um, but looking at how he was able to establish his fastball for strikes this year, and I think his fastball maybe is one of the best fastballs in the minor leagues, uh, has just led to a lot of success. And it's funny now just to think of these guys as likely starters when they were not starting pitchers for a majority of their college careers. You don't, I don't think you see that too often. Maybe, maybe it's more than I think. I'll have to go check, but it's a bit rare. The, Wait, the other thing I just wanted to add: players get better. I'm shocked to hear this. I keep hearing people say a player is what he is. I mean, it and it just goes back to again: these are young guys who, and you're talking about what they were early in their college careers. They're teenagers. They're going into their bodies. They're figuring out their stuff. They're figuring out how to play the game and compete at higher levels. And and I think with Brandon Fott, that's one thing that you know has jumped out. Jeff, you talked about the fastball and maybe shape wise, it doesn't jump out, but it gets whiffs. A big part of it is how aggressive he is with it. He's going to shove it down your throat. He's coming right at you. And if you're not ready for it, it's going to get blown by you. I mean, it's he's 6'3", broad shoulders. He comes at you. It's very, very aggressive. You know, a comparison that I keep getting on him is Lance Lynn. Here it is. I'm going to throw it over the plate, hit it if you can. And more often than not, they can't. And it goes back to, again, that aggressiveness, that mindset. And that's a big part of, again, being durable, being successful. He was on the mound for 167 innings last year. 
And there were a lot of six, seven, even eight inning starts in Reno. That doesn't happen, but he has big stuff. He attacks guys. He's fearless out there, and it makes a big difference. JJ, I'm sorry. I cut you off. What were you going to chime in no, with? You hit on it, which is exactly that, which is, is we are in a world now where there are a lot of pitchers in the minors who 120, 120 innings is considered a pretty full workload in the minors nowadays, 130. Whoa, he got to 140. What Fat has done, like he is one of the few guys in the minors who, if you said give him a full MLB starter's workload from day one to the last day of the season, you shouldn't have a question about whether he can handle it because what you just said, considering where he's done this already, he's passed that test. And I also give credit to the D-backs on this. I don't think enough teams allow guys to pass that test in the minors. They get that test for the first time really in the majors because teams are so cautious, you know, and concerned about health and all that. But the designated, we're going to shut you down this time through the order, through the line, you know, through the start so that you don't get too worked out, you know, too worn down. We're going to pull you after five so you don't get too worn down. That doesn't happen as much in the majors. It happens, but not as much. Brandon Fat's a guy who's already gone through that before he reaches the majors. My, my favorite is uh, Brandon Fott's uh, first three AAA starts at Las Vegas. Six innings, one run, five Ks. Then he has to go to Albuquerque for his second start. What does he do? Seven innings. Goes back to Albuquerque again for his third start. He has to, his first three starts for Vegas, Albuquerque, Albuquerque. Places the ball, absolutely flies. Again, they do it at his home park too. Again, six innings, one run, 10 strikeouts. I mean, he went eight later on. He went eight innings with four hits, two runs allowed, no walks, and 11 strikeouts in Salt Lake. Pitching at 6,000 feet of elevation where if someone hits a ball in the air, it goes 350 feet and just shoved and lasted eight innings in Salt Lake. Like, I'm just trying to emphasize people being out here on the West Coast, seeing a lot of the PCL, having a lot of history with PCL. That doesn't happen. People don't survive for eight innings in Salt Lake. If you can get through five, you are golden. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so for me, I really think Brandon Fott's a guy that, again, is the least famous of all these guys. But if you're going to ask me which of these guys is going to become a, a front of the rotation ace type, I'm picking him. Stuff, control, durability, aggressiveness, poise, toughness, you name it. He's got it. And that for me is is why I also think the Diamondbacks farm system is is great. They have these great young position players, but they also have a premium arm, which is a big part of that. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We've already been going for 50 minutes, but I can keep going with you all. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get right back in and jump more into the back two-thirds of this list. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. 
I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. All right, we are back breaking down the Baseball America Top 100 Prospects. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined by J.J. Cooper, Jeff Ponce, Carlos Colazzo. All right, guys, we uh, got through the top 30 in about 50 minutes. I think we'll get through the rest of the list in, in a lot quicker manner. We'll, we'll be more pitch efficient. We'll be like Brandon Fott. We'll be more pitch efficient here uh, with how quickly we get through things. Um, and we talked about sort of just these demographics positionally, right? We talked about uh, the guys at the top, the, the high school arms, the young shortstops, uh, this college arm group. I feel like as we put together the, our, our personal top 100s, we all kind of talked about, we felt like there was a bit of a break in the talent once you got past 30, um, you know, early 30s. Um, but there's still some players here who are really, really talented again, whether it's, you know, young infielders who have maybe fallen a little bit like Marco Luciano or Noel Marte, but they're still talented. Um, you have injured pitchers like Shane Boz, who's done some really good stuff, fast movers like Sal Frelick. Who are some of the guys in this kind of this next group, this 30 to 50, that that really, really intrigue you? Uh, just one or two names with a quick, you know, synopsis of why. JJ, let's start with you. I'm going to go with someone who you might have said, like, really still? Royce Lewis. And I say that because I know he got hurt last year. I know he's hurt again. Like, that's an again, not a he got hurt for the first time. Royce Lewis has been hurt multiple occasions. But what he did show before he got hurt last year was – Really impressive. And I do think once he comes back, especially now that they've got Carlos Correa installed at shortstop, I think that he will be a multi-position guy who could help at the big league level this year and also give them a uh, a little bit of evening out in a lineup that gets very left-handed at times in Minnesota. And I would say also with him, I'll just stay on the Twins, Emmanuel Rodriguez is a guy who could really rock it up this list with a healthy, uh, with a healthy, speaking of knee injuries, with a healthy 2023, man, the Twins had knee injuries this year. Yeah, the, the D-backs and shoulder injuries and the Twins with knee injuries, uh, it's very, very strange, and, and you hope it doesn't continue. Jeff, how about you? Who are maybe one or two guys in the 30 to 50 range that really intrigue you and you're going to be keeping an eye on? Yeah. Oh man. Cause there's a guy right outside of this 30 to 50 range. <laughs> we can, we can extend it to like 51, 52. If we 50, need. I would say 56. Is that possible? Go um, for it. Cause Gavin stone is a guy that um, in yeah. my own personal rankings, I have him in the top 25. Uh, I think this is one of the better pitching prospects in baseball. Uh, one, another guy Dodgers behind him in terms of the player development. So you got to love that. 
but he's improved so much. This guy was the penultimate pick in the 2020 draft. Um, the improvement that you saw from even 2020 to 2021, and then from 2021 to 2022, where he ends up winning the minor league ERA title. And in the middle of that, and I talked about this with Carlos, we'll have some information coming out of the end of the week on this. Um, the guy reworked his slider. He went from sort of like a cutter, like gyro slider hybrid to throwing a true sweeper. And it was a really good pitch for him. And he adjusted doing that in Tulsa um, and then pitched well in the, in the PCL at the end of the year. So another guy that sort of navigated this, this difficult area. Um, the other guy that I'll throw out there, cause I'm going to stick on pitchers cause that's who I am. Um, there's a few pitches I love here in this 30 to 50 range, but Ricky Tiedemann for me, I think Ricky Tiedemann could potentially be the best pitching prospect in baseball by the end of the year, especially if a few of these guys ahead of him do graduate. Um, excellent three pitch mix, a guy that has a plus plus changeup already, a really unique fastball with power. Um, he's six five and sort of built like a defensive lineman uh, in a good way, like a you know a, a, a defensive end, not a defensive tackle. You know, he's not a nose tackle, but big guy, really really strong. Um, already at the double A, has already had success. And I think you look at a guy like that, and you look at what the Blue Jays have done with some of their top pitching prospects over the last couple of years. He's a guy that I do think could even maybe uh, push for a rotation spot by the end of the year if there's some injuries in that rotation at the big league level. We know the Blue Jays are a competitive team. It could be the right situation. But I think when we look at the progression that Tiedemann has made from undrafted high school player to Juco pick in the third round to now arguably the top lefty, uh, pitching prospect in baseball, him and Kyle Harrison. It's pretty remarkable. Carlos, how about you? Yeah, I, I just echo the the two that JJ and Jeff said that I'm really high on as well are Tiedemann and um, who was the second one? Where do I have him ranked? Oh, Rodriguez. List. Yes, Rodriguez. Manuel Rodriguez. I was looking at our, our top 100. I have him juiced. I have him in like the top 25. So I, I will just echo everything JJ said about Emmanuel Rodriguez. Um but yeah, I have a couple guys that have a little bit further down the list that that I would have if it was just my list, which it would be a worse list if that was the case. But on my list, I really like in Shocker, we're doing recent draftees here, but I love Dylan Lesko and Cam Collier. Um, I was super aggressive with Lesko. And again, Kyle, maybe this is uh, not your cup of tea, but high school right-handed pitcher coming off TJ, no pro track record. <laughs> like you're not going to get much riskier than this, but at the same time. That's Kyle Bingo. That's the Kyle List <laughs> Bingo No, but the, fu the funny thing is I've seen Lesko and uh, yeah. look, he's fantastic. I saw him the PGL American game and I get it. He's he's one of the so, greatest, so this one of the, the best thing. high school pitchers you'll see in terms of polish and stuff. I get it. Um, we just have to see if the stuff comes back as is. But yes, go ahead, Carlos. Yeah. So Lesko is the best pitching prospect that I've seen since I've started. And my first year covering the draft was 2017. So I think the most comparable high school talent that I would have seen is Mackenzie Gore. And I think Dylan Lesko is better at the same age than Mackenzie was. And, and at the time we had him as like a top three prospect. I think if Lesko is healthy, which obviously is, is we're just living in a different world now because he's not healthy, but he probably would have been a top 10 pick and there's a chance he could have been a top five pick. Um, the one maybe questionable thing with, with Lesko now is I don't know that the Padres have the greatest track record of developing pitchers. Um, that was something that was brought up by some other evaluators when I was just talking through my list with them. And then going on to a hitter who's a recent draftee that I really like. I mean, Cam Collier was a guy that both myself and Ben were just, Ben Badler, were both very high on pre-draft. Super young for the class. He should be a 2023 high school prospect in this, this coming up draft. Uh, he reclassified, went to junior college, 
um, hit extremely well at one of the best junior colleges in the country. And then I think what's even more encouraging, not that I didn't like him before the draft, but afterward, just the, the bat of ball information that we got with him, he hit the ball exceptionally hard and it's a very small sample. So I don't know how quickly exit velocities stabilize in, in like an eight game pro sample, but I thought that was encouraging. I think he just is a very natural, pure hitter. Um, how polished and advanced he is in terms of his approach and bat to ball ability now combined with the strength that I think he has, I think he's going to be a guy who learns to elevate, uh, elevate and celebrate a little bit more often as he, he gets a little bit older. So those would be two 2022 draftees um, that, that I want to get really aggressive on uh, right now. For me, the two guys in this range are two guys that I first saw playing together, actually, at the 2019 Area Code Games. I uh, saw them um, in the California League in 2021 and have continued to track their progress and, and think very, very highly of uh, Tyler Soderstrom and Kyle Harrison. I want to start with Tyler Soderstrom. The thing we have to remember is he started this year in the Midwest League, and the general rule is always throughout the first month of Midwest League stats. It's freezing. It's cold, especially for guys from California, Texas, Florida, Latin America, just throw them out. They don't matter. Um, Tyler Soderstrom's overall numbers this year, a few people were discouraged. But if you take out the first six weeks of the Midwest Lakes, so once the weather warmed up from May 15th on, he hit 290, 339, 537 with 25 homers, 91 RBIs. Um, this guy was one of the most productive hitters in the minor leagues hit for average, hit for power, got on base. He was aggressive that the strikeout to walk isn't ideal. But once he kind of thawed out, I actually remember talking to uh, someone close to him um, early in the year when I was out traveling the country in April who mentioned like, yeah, he's freezing right now. It's 38 degrees. He can't feel his hands. As soon as the weather warmed up, we saw the premium hitter that people think he can be. I mean, last year in the Cali, people were putting 60 hits, 60 power on him. No problem. Even some 70 hits, 60 power. And that's the kind of hitter he can be. Uh, he played more first base than catcher this year. Some of that was a thumb injury, but some of it's also kind of just the expectation was he'd eventually move to first base. Um, but I still think this is just such a special hitter that even with that move to first base full time, if it happens as expected, he still has a chance to be a premier hitter in Major League Baseball. And, and for my money, uh, he's one of the best pure hitting prospects in the game. He's someone I think very highly of and I think we'll be seeing hitting in the middle of the order in the big leagues and in, in short order and being better than a lot of guys right ahead of him. And then Kyle Harrison, um, you know, it's funny. I saw him at first, the Erica games, he's a skinny lefty, but it was 90, 92 low slot, had some good angle and some late zip and just got on guys, had good secondaries, really liked it. You could see he had a lot of room to grow and pack on the pounds and he did. And now that 90-92 with late zip and movement is 95-98 with late zip and movement from the left side that guys just don't pick up. Uh, got to double A again and had a really, really, really loud season um, last year. 186 strikeouts in 113 innings as a 20-year-old. The ma majority of that in double A facing guys two or three years older than him. You know, the walk rate's still a little high, but it's coming down. We're seeing the control improve. We're seeing the pitch efficiency improve. The one thing for him after last season was just, again, we talk about durability. Instead of going, you know, three, four innings, let's start seeing him go five, six. We started to see him do that throughout the year last year, a lot more five-inning stints, a couple six-inning stints, even had a seven-inning stint. Um, I think as he just gets another year of physical development under him, uh, continues to get bigger and stronger, um, this is a guy who has a chance to be a, a premium left-handed starter in Major League Baseball. I think he's at least a number three starter. He might be more. Um, just as he continues to get bigger and stronger, the stuff is there. The moxie is there. The the pitch mix is there. 
Um, he's a guy I think has a chance to be pretty special. And he's someone that, you know, along with Soderstrom, I think is, is going to end up having a really good big league career. Before we kind of dive into the back half of this list, Carlos, you talked about a few guys you like. Um, Jeff, mm-hmm. you mentioned Gavin Stone, who, again, very, very likely is going to have a, a really good career best based off everything we saw last year. Um, but before we kind of dive into some of the, the players in here, JJ, I think one point that you've hit on a lot, and I think it's important we reemphasize, is the difference between, say, the player ranked number one and the player ranked number 25 is a lot wider of a gap than the player ranked number 50 player ranked number 100 once you get into this range even though there's a big separation in terms of the numbers there's not a huge separation in terms of the talent right if you look at when we do this so we in the prospect handbook and on online eventually we'll roll out there as well we have the ba grades and if you look at that we have that kind of creates tiers i would say so the top tiers is you have the guys who we've had 75 highs 75 mediums i think is the highest grade we've ever given out but you so these are the guys who are saying this player is got a good chance to be a perennial all-star one of the best players of the game that kind of level not shockingly and if those guys this year but you go to that top tier and it's like three it's like the top tiers like gunner and corbin carroll and churio of like the guys who are at this on our current straight, you know, how we stratify them, they're there. And then you have a group that gets you to like 25. And then you have a group that gets you to like 50. And then you have a group, and the difference between number 55 on this list and number 100 is less than the difference between number 10 and number 50. And it's a pretty dramatically less. Now you get off of this list a little bit, you get into the 150s, 160s, we have about 350 players in the prospect handbook who all have a, effectively the same grade. That's the tier where you get into, I always call it the 50 high line, the BA grades, 50 high, 50 high, 45 medium, 55 extreme. There is, there are a ton of those players across the minors. Sounds and like we should start breaking out the decimals, JJ. The decimal yeah, grade. But some, of those, <laughs> and some of those will end up being better than that and some won't a lot won't but the the difference that means though is is when teams say teams love to say oh we really like our depth okay yes but usually that depth are guys where you're like well we really like this guy he's he's a good player in double a and he's usually what those players they're talking about are 50 highs 45 medium type players and the answer on that is is that's something that everyone has. I, I don't, you know, again, I'm in a Debbie Downer mood, I guess, today. But <laughs> that's something that everyone has in their system. The Padres, every year, are taking the majority of their system and they're dealing it away. And why are they able to make moves again next year? Because they keep replenishing. Because international signings and the draft, combined with a little bit of development, gives you that level of depth. What it doesn't give you and what stands out on the 100, it doesn't give you eight guys in the top 100. It doesn't give you seven guys in the top 100. And that's where when you look at the systems, when you look at the Orioles, when you look at the Guardians, when you look at the Dodgers, when you look at these teams, that's harder to do. And when especially, I will say, the Orioles have gotten here, credit to them. But it is easier to get there 
when you are winning 60, 60, when you're drafting one, two, three, four, the fact that the Dodgers are doing this year in, year out, mm-hmm. over and over and over, and the Dodgers aren't picking one or five or 10 or 15, they're winning their division every year. And they keep turning guys who are, well, this guy was a nice third round pick. We talk about Dalton rushing. Dalton rushing is a guy who got consideration for the top hundred. They just took Dalton rushing 40th overall last July. There are no other players in that range who are getting noise about being a top hundred player. This is just I mean, another example. The Dodgers are really good at what they do. Yeah, just to chime in on that, I saw Dalton rushing at Rancho Cucamonga, and I'm watching him. I'm like, how the heck did this guy fall to 40th? And, I, and I, I'm just watching him like, again, I didn't see the whole country, but I saw a lot of the guys on the West Coast that went ahead of him. I have no idea how that happens. And I remember having that conversation with a few Dodgers officials, and I even put one of them like, how did this guy fall to 40? And they were saying they don't know. Um, a lot of Dodgers officials I spoke with said if he was available at 30, they would have taken him there. And a few said if he was available at 20, they would have taken him there. And yeah, just watch, watching the ability on the field, it's like, how did this guy go behind these other guys? I, I don't understand how that happened. But clearly the Dodgers uh, were able to take advantage of that. So with that, there are a few guys on this list. And we talk about, again, there's not a lot of separation. You know, sometimes why is so-and-so number 55 and so-and-so is number 87? Well, if you look at it, they actually have the same BA grade in a lot of cases. Um, but there are a few guys on here that really, really do jump out and stand out for the seasons they've had. And, you know, as guys that maybe could jump into that top 50 range or maybe even more if they answer one or two questions. Um, one of the bigger breakout prospects last year was Kyle Manzardo, first baseman with the Rays. Uh, he was a second round pick out of Washington state in the 2021 draft. And just being out here on the West coast, I remember, you know, some real buzz around him, you know, getting his name that, Hey, this guy can really, really hit. You know, he's limited to first base. I remember getting like a, it was, you know, comps of like, you know, good, good everyday first base, but not superstars, but you know, good everyday players. And, you know, the Rays certainly got a guy. Some people thought might be sneaking into the first round range in the second round, which is always a win. Um, but even with that, the season he went up and had in his pro debut, got to double A, finished second in the Myers and OPS. I mean, hit for power, hit for average, did everything. You know, 327, 426, 617, 22 homers, 81 RBIs. Walk to strikeout was great. 59 walks to 65 strikeouts. I mean, there's no flaw really anywhere in his offensive game. Um, right now he's, he's you know, in the back half of the top 100. But that level of offensive production will play anywhere. He's currently at number 60. JJ, you do the race system. What's the future for Kyle Manzardo, and how likely is it that he's a guy that jumps from here into that top 50, maybe even top 25, just based purely on how much damage he uh, he causes at the plate? I, I like what Jeff said about him. We were, we were, I think it was during our top 100 conversation, and he said, so basically this year's Vinny Pasquantino. And it's like, there is some, to some extent, that there's a yes on that, which is is you're talking about college, college hitters, emphasis on hitter because Cal Manzardo, like the rest of the game, Cal Manzardo is not going to win any foot races. Cal Manzardo is a first baseman who's not playing in the outfield. He could DH for you and he can play first base. End of list. But he can hit. He can and he has that ability to hit for average, to hit for power, and do it without striking out a lot, which is everything that we were saying about Vinny Pasquantino at this time last year, when he had moved on to the hundred, 
that's the kind of guy you're talking about here. There is always understandably some natural skepticism for guys like this because the value is entirely tied to the bat. And in Manzardo's case, Manzardo did make it to double A last year, but the majority of his damage was done in class A. And so there is some concern there. It's like, okay, let's see him do it at a higher level for the entirety of a season. If he does, if he goes, if he goes to back to Montgomery and does this, or especially if he goes to Durham and does this in 2023, he's going to rocket up this list because at that point, there's almost nothing left for him to do uh, at the minor league level. And it's not a guy, the consistent evaluators will consistently say with him, this guy can really hit. It's not a, oh, you know, he's just feasting on bad pitching or anything like that. No, he can really hit. But the concern, the skepticism remains that it is an entirely bat first profile for a first baseman. And there's often kind of a natural limitation. Tristan Casas is, I think, our highest of those guys on this list. And I think Tristan Casas is about maxed out about now. If you look back in hindsight, every now and then a Freddie Freeman comes along and you're like, you know what? We should have ranked Freddie Freeman higher, but there was the concern because he was a first base only profile. You, those guys can just hit their way to stardom, but that's why there's at least a little bit of hesitation is, is when you're comparing a guy like that to some of these guys we talked about before, who, by the way, are going to provide defensive value for you as well at a middle up the middle position or in the outfield or whatever. That's the the limiting factor in some ways. You mentioned, you know, Calvin Zardo and how he's grown. And this actually creates kind of a pivot point. Carlos, 2021 draft. I think if anyone told you that Kyle Manzardo looked like he was going to be a better big leaguer than Henry Davis, you might have been laughed out of the room. Um, Henry mm-hmm. Davis was the number one overall pick in the draft last year. Now it was an underslot signing. It's important to remember that he was not considered the best player in the draft, but he was considered, you know, top five, top 10 to be sure. Um, and you look at this list now in the BA Top 100. On the one hand, if you're on the BA Top 100, you project to be a, a, a good a good player. Um, but he is at number 73 behind a lot of guys who were taken well after him in the 2021 draft using Manzardo just as one example. Uh, Jeff, you saw a lot of Henry Davis this year. Carlos, um, you know, I know you did a lot of work on him in the draft. I, I want to start with you guys here. What do you make of Henry Davis now after his first full year? He did get up to double A. He did hit for power. So it wasn't bad, but it wasn't quite what maybe you were hoping for with the first overall pick. I know, Jeff, you saw a lot of him. Uh, we'll start with you. What are your overall thoughts on him and his career path as it stands right now? Sure. I think the biggest question for me isn't the bat. I mean, you look at the numbers. You look at the underlying data. He hits the ball hard. Um it's a little bit of a flat bat path, but I don't think that's a massive issue. Um, he should hit for some average. I think he's going to hit for power. Um, the question for me is behind the plate. The receiving skills, the transfer, because the arm is there, but the transfer to get there and get those throws off at times isn't very fluid. Um, and I, I really wasn't impressed with the catching behind the plate. So the big question for me is like, where does he end up defensively? Because if you spend a number one pick and this guy will say ends up as a right-handed hitting DH and he could be a good one, but a right-handed hitting DH, I think that's a bit of a disappointment, especially considering you wanted this guy, you know, to be, if not your everyday catcher, part of a catching platoon with another really good catcher they have in their system than Andy Rodriguez. Um, but 
that's the question for me is really the defensive player because I do think I do think Henry Davis is going to hit. Um, there's power there. The numbers, like I said, sort of back it. Um, but you know, there's there's some question as to whether or not he does truly stick behind the plate, and I'm not so sure just on the kind of athlete he is if he's really projectable anywhere else in the field, frankly. You know, yeah, funny, no, I, um, I, oh, I was going to say just real quick, Hoss, because I do want to ask yeah, you a question, but I want to mention this. Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to see him in person, but I pulled up, you know, video, and especially on Synergy, and I immediately sent Jeff a Slack just watching. It's like, this looks like Mike Napoli, the swing, the way it works, and also the defense. And, and if he's Mike Napoli, that's a really good player. But I, I do kind of think that's what we're looking at is, you know, a power-hitting, part-time catcher who DHs a lot. I think that probably, and again, that's not a bad outcome. Mike Napoli had a great, great, great major league career. Um, it's just a question of, is that what you want with your number one overall pick when you have, you know, some of the shortstops like a Jordan Lawler, like a Marcelo Mayer, guys who project to be potentially franchise caliber talents if everything clicks. So, I, you know, we'll see what happens with Henry Davis. There, there's a lot still to come. Carlos, we, Jeff talked about the defense. I'm watching it myself. Again, I that's kind of what I saw, guy. Like, can he catch? Yeah. Do you want him to be your primary catcher? Probably not. I remember during the draft cycle, as he was rising last year, you know, that was the thing. A lot of people believed in the bat, but the catching got very split reviews. Um, just what was kind of your thoughts on, you know, what looked like as an amateur, how it developed, and, and maybe where that has led him to now? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys summarized him really well. I don't have a lot of super insightful additional info i think you guys broke them down well um I, I think the one thing i would point out is there have been a lot of catchers who scouts uh, at the amateur level especially we've seen it, it is very hard to project catcher defense accurately because so many of these catchers at the amateur level don't have nearly the sort of instruction they're going to get once they're in pro ball now with henry it's a little bit different because the feedback has still been poor after he's already been in a pro system but there are guys who come to mind like Ryan Jeffers or a Bo Naylor or a Cal Raleigh who either have turned into good catchers or they turned into much better catchers than they were expected to be as amateurs. I've talked with a lot of scouts about why this is, and most people have gotten back to me and said that just evaluating catcher defense is incredibly hard at the amateur level. And I think that's a position where maybe more than any other position, there are a lot of gains to be made once you're focused on it full time. Uh, once you're out of school, because I think the school element too is a big factor with this. A guy like Kevin Parada was similar. Once he's out of Georgia Tech, he's going to have a lot of time to just focus on the polish and the nuances of catching. It's his full-time job now. So I wouldn't write any of these players off just because I've seen so many players come through the minor leagues who previously I wrote off in my own mind and, and they're doing it. And I don't think that you need to be a great catcher or even an average defensive catcher uh, to provide value as a catcher if you're a good hitter. There are plenty of offensive-oriented catchers who are not winning gold gloves that are still valuable players. So I wouldn't write it off, um, but at the same time, yeah, he needs to show some improvement if he's going to live up to 1-1 status. And the last thing I'll say is I think with any draft class, you could go back and pick out a player and say, wow, this team looks really bad for not having uh, picked someone else in hindsight. The draft is is very tough, and most of the picks – um, you're going to look back and you, you could have done a better pick. These guys are just really hard to project moving forward. That's true. I will say good though, going under slot at number one is kind of asking for trouble in a lot of cases. It's and the pirates have the number one overall pick again, and there are examples of it working, but there's a lot more examples of it completely falling flat. <laughs> you're not playing an odds game that generally works out in your favor when you do that. 
I, I would say the way I would say it is, is that you, what you, if you're taking the guy at one, because you believe he's the best player in the draft class, even if you can get him at a deal, that's one thing. If you're taking the guy at one, because you're like, ah, we don't think he's the best guy, but it'll let us spend it further down. That's a lot riskier. I, I just always think about it as I think the Astros yeah. really did believe that Carlos Correa was the best player in that draft class. Okay. If you can do that and save some money, Great. Congratulations to you. And I will say you're taking them to just to to push money down. Yeah. There's a reason you want to take them at the top. In in Henry Davis's case too, that, that draft class did not have a consensus top player. I think there was a consensus group, a consensus top tier maybe, but every time we tried to solicit feedback to feel good about who we were putting one in that class, there was never a feeling like in 2019 where it was obviously Adley Rushman or there was never a feeling um, a year later when it was Spencer Torkelson. Like we just didn't have a very clear player in that case. And maybe if, if that's the situation you're dealing with, where there's no player who jumps out as the top, you do find the best deal of that top tier players and, and see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. And again, Henry Davis certainly isn't a bad player, but I do think it's notable how many guys from the same draft class right now project to be better big leaguers than he does, which is the point of a top 100. Uh, shifting gears, Number 67 on this list is Jason Dominguez. And, you know, Dominguez was a guy who came out with just absolutely insane hype to the point it wasn't fair to the kid. You know, got tied for the largest bonus of his international class. And, you know, people talk about, you know, the Martian. And is he Mike Trout? Is he Mickey Mantle? Is he, you know, going to be the greatest player, you know, to wear a Yankee uniform, which of course is insane considering all the greats they've had. But I mean, people were really, really going over the top about him. And then the fact that he didn't play in 2020 and there was a COVID year added to the mystery and in some ways added to the hype because, again, just that mystery of, oh, my gosh, who is this kid? And he came out. He did not light the world on fire, performed perfectly fine for a player as young as he was in the leagues he was, and especially dealing with the scrutiny that he had to deal with. Josh Norris talked about that a lot last year. Um but again, you know, because the expectations were just so insane and, and unfairly to him, he didn't live up to that. People got disappointed. He kind of fell off their radars a little bit. Um, but he pretty quietly got up to double A last year as a teenager, you know, did okay, did okay in a difficult place to hit in Tampa and low A, hit very, very well on high once he got to Hudson Valley as a 19-year-old. I think with Jason Dominguez, the thing that's important is this is a good player. He's not Mike Trout. No one is. Mike Trout's the best player to come through the major leagues in, in a generation and maybe longer. Um, but he's still a good player. As we assess Jason Dominguez now, where does where does he stand for you guys and just how do you see him now and moving forward? I think I wrote about this that basically if you were saying who's the Martian in the minors right now, Ellie De La Cruz is the Martian. There is only one guy in the minors like Ellie De La Cruz. You have this six-foot is he five? Is it six foot six shortstop? Who, by the way, is a 70 runner who has a 70 or better arm, who's a switch hitter who can hit the ball 450 feet lefty or righty. That's the Martian. What Jason Dominguez is and why he's on the top hundred. This is a guy who is a very well-rounded player with good secondary skills. If you said what is Jason Dominguez's best asset, it's that knows how to get on base. He has a chance to hit for a solid average, solid power is the hope play a solid defense. He's not really, it's not going to be a, 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 you know, a, an 80 center fielder, but 
He could play center field if you want him to. He could be good in a corner, potentially. He's just a very well-rounded player. Some of the feedback that we got when we were doing this, like one one said, is, is you all have him in a very appropriate place. And that's where he's ranking on our top 100, which is this is a very good prospect. And if you just treat him as a prospect like all these other guys, you go, oh, he's one of the better young prospects on this list. If you treat him as the guy who, and this happens, like Kevin Maitan looks at the Jason <laughs> Dominguez career path and he goes, oh, if I could only have had that path. Because, you know, guys can, sometimes guys at 16 are seen to be the greatest player to come out in a very long while and they become Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Or they become Wander Franco. Or they become Julio Rodriguez. Those were all some really, really highly touted international prospects. Sometimes they become Kevin Maitan, who the body went backwards. And what he he was the best Kevin Maitan ever was, was probably when he was 16 or 17. Like it's probably more when he was 21 14, year old. That's Kevin, when the agreements are reached. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, but whereas with Jason Dominguez, what he is, is, is like, he's a guy who was considered this exceptional prospect as a, 15-year-old, 16-year-old. And okay, he's not that, but to his credit, this guy's going to play in the majors for quite a while. And that's really good for even the top players on the international signing class. But it just feels like a disappointment if your expectation was, is, well, we're just waiting for the next Joe DiMaggio. We have Joe DiMaggio. We had Mickey Mantle. Then we had a gap. Then we had Bernie Williams, who wasn't in, you know, really wasn't that level, but he did roam center for like for teams that won World Series. And, you know, and then now we're going to have Jason Dominguez. If you expect that, then you are going to be really disappointed. Jeff, you've seen a good bit of Dominguez being out on the East Coast. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I saw him once actually on the East Coast. The majority of times I've seen him was actually in Arizona, funny enough. Um, okay impressive athlete i mean just you look at the body you look at a guy like this and i i I kind of always say this that i feel like you know this is the this is the kind of guy that you know had he grown up in alabama or tennessee or louisiana he's probably playing d1 football in the sec right it's that kind of a build or body he looks like a free safety that would come through the middle and you know cream running backs it's that kind of a build he has pickup speed um there's definitely power from both sides of the plate he put on impressive batting practices while i was out there i do think there's some some inconsistency some rawness in his game still too like some of the routes he takes in center field doesn't always get great throws off um he's a really smart hitter he doesn't necessarily chase out of the zone i think that's probably as jj said sort of his primary asset at this point is that he does have uh, i would say plus approach at the plate he's going to get on base a lot It's really just a matter of like, how does the hit tool develop? Does the power get to a point where he is a 30 plus homer guy? If he's a 30 plus homer guy as a switch hitter and can play all three outfield positions, that's a great player. I think if you're a Yankees fan, you, that, that is, that's a 90 percentile outcome for really any prospect. I don't know if he gets there though. You know, I don't know if he's just an average everyday regular that has above average all-star seasons from time to time and kind of puts him in that sort of 55 tier for me mentally. Um, good player, not the most exciting player I've, I saw this year, though, and probably not the most exciting Yankees outfielder I saw. I'd say that 
Spencer Jones and and you could even say Everson Pereira probably have higher power upside. Yeah, one of the things with Dominguez that's interesting is he's a switch hitter and he's solid from the right side. It's not terrible, but really from the left side, he's pretty strong. And if you just looked at his left-handed splits and if that was his slash on over the course of the whole year, you'd be pretty excited about it. Um, the right-handed swing, again, it's not bad. There are some switch hitters in the minors where it's like, okay, they really need to drop that swing. It's just not working. And it's not that level with Dominguez, but it does drag it down a little bit. Um, again, it just goes back to like you guys are kind of talking about, he's a good player. He's a good prospect. He's in the right spot here. Um, someone who, like you said, has a chance to play every day in the major leagues. He's not going to be a superstar, but he has a chance to be a pretty good player. And, you know, along with the rawness, we saw that a little bit in the futures game. He had that bad drop in center field. You know, he's also 19 years old and some of that is just going to come with experience and reps and maturity. So, um, it's just one of those things where, and JJ, you can speak to this. You know, it's interesting. I think that there was a time, well, I don't think, I know there was a time when prospect information was impossible to find. And as a result, there just wasn't a lot out there. Now we're in an era where there's a lot more information. Obviously, the traditional news outlets, ourselves included, but also a lot of fans have started their own blogs and have started a lot of, you know, a lot of sites out there. And I think for a time, you know, just as someone who was an outsider who read Baseball America, you know, BA's primary job was to raise awareness of these pro prospects because no one else was doing it. Now there's been such a proliferation. I almost feel like as a staff member, our responsibility is to provide the accurate reporting about what these guys are because there's so much being written about them that's coming from a hype standpoint, not a reporting standpoint. One of the things I, I like to listen to old BA podcast, which by the way, we have over 750 of them, actually more than that, maybe a thousand of them that you can go back and I'll just pick random times from past years and all that. And I was listening to one not that long ago from 2009, I think it was. And it happened to be a rule five draft preview. Um, imagine that. And what I wasn't involved, I wasn't involved in the rule five draft coverage at that point yet. So sad to say, uh, again, I was a child. I was left to, you know, like I could eat it. You know, I, I was at the child, the kid's table, but um. But one of the things that stood out about it was they were talking about a player who they considered to be a uh, potential Rule 5 pick. And they were talking about him, and they said, you know, he could have made the Tigers top 30 when we had that guy who got traded right before the handbook, but we didn't have enough information on him to write a 250-word report, and we didn't really have time to go out and get that information. We didn't have time to go follow up. We had like notes that his slider was pretty good, but they didn't know what his velocity range was at the time. They didn't have much on his delivery, all that. Right. And this was at a time where you also could not see these players unless you saw them in person, like minor league video basically did not exist at this point. Um, and so there was, it was a time when I started baseball America, like, there were players who I would write about and I would never see them. If I didn't see them in spring training or whatever, I would never see them until they made the majors. And now we have the proliferation. We can watch more on high school players now than we could on AAA players 15 years ago. And so now it's more about synthesizing, gathering, synthesizing the information and presenting it in a way with context. That's what we can provide is context. Because I will tell you, you know, I, I give all credit. A lot of these are our subscribers. If you are a diehard 
Reds fan or a diehard Giants fan or a diehard Yankees fan or whatever, you can watch more. I, I do our Reds list, but if you really focus at it and are really dedicated to it, you can watch more Reds minor league games than I can because I'm doing the Reds and I'm doing the Twins and I'm doing and I'm doing the dra- Rays and I'm doing the draft and I'm doing all these other things too. If you say I'm just going to watch Yankees minor league games every night, you can get a good feel for these players. But what we do, and this is one of the key things the Top 100 does, is we want to also provide that context for you. We can talk to people all around baseball. We can report the hell out of these Top 100s to try to be able to tell you, here's how the guys line up. Here's how the, that's why we do our updates during the season. So we can give that context to you and not just say, oh, this is a pop-up prospect in an organization, but this is the pop-up prospect. And this is how he compares to the other guys in this organization and how he compares to the other guys in minor league baseball. That's what we do. And that's what the top hundred has been doing since 1990. It's just, we got a whole lot more friends, a whole lot more other people out there doing top hundreds now than we did when we started in 1990, where it was like, it's the baseball America top hundred. You just said the top hundred at that time, because what else was there going to be? Oh, you mean the baseball America top hundred? Yes because there was one top 100 prospects list. We're not the only top 100 prospects list at this point. We we do appreciate and understand that. Absolutely. All right, guys, just to wrap up here, um, one final thing. We keep this real quick. Who is someone that did not make the top 100, but that you had on your personal top 100, you feel very strongly about, and you think in no time will be a member of the top 100 prospects? JJ, who you got? Oh man, I'm thinking I'm trying to go to my list and to scan through so I don't forget someone that I really like. Um Let's start with Jeff or Carlos. You know if, I'll if go, you need no, no, I got one. I've got one. Mason Hour. Mason Hour didn't, you know, Mason Hour's not on the list yet, but I think that I think that this year Mason Hour will be on the list. Ray's outfielder didn't miss the list by much uh as it stands right now, but yet another Ray's outfielder who could play center for most teams, they'll probably put him in the corner he's more like a 55 or six defender in center not a seven but power speed interesting combo i'll I'll go mason hour jeff how about you so i was gonna say cooper jerpy here uh which i think everybody knows you have to say cooper jerpy you have to say cooper jerpy no instead i'm gonna i'm gonna go with chase delauder and i'm gonna go on my my high horse i think it's chase delauder because i don't think that the the industry has seen as much of chase delauder as i was fortunate enough to see over the course of the summer 2021, this guy is a plus runner. I think he has a plus hit tool on um, base stability, plus power. His play center field is a dynamic athlete. I think we're going to see the best out of him. And I know there's been some some talk about him having platoon issues against lefties. We looked it up the other day. Carlos thank, thankfully gave me these numbers. 993 career OPS against left, left-handed pitching. It's left on left. I think this guy is easily going to be a top 100 player. Um, Guardians, I think, hit another homer in the draft, frankly. So this is my chase to lauder. But you know I feel the same about Cooper Jerby. <laughs> Can I interject? Because I got a chat question about this. Because Gunnar Henderson does not hit lefties all that well. The thing I will say about that is, is that if you talked about a right-handed hitter who can't hit righties, you've got trouble. But if you're a left-handed hitter who doesn't hit lefties as well as you hit righties, nowadays, this is a great time for you to exist. Because one... They just neutered the shift rules in some ways. But two, with the minimum batter-faced rules, you aren't getting 
the lefty specialist who's coming in just to get you out of it. To give an example, and this is without those rules, Freddie Freeman, he hits lefties okay, but he's always hit righties way better than lefties. 70% of his plate appearances are against right-handers. It's really hard nowadays. If it's the lefty and you're worried about how he faces lefties, as long as he feasts on righties, you can make that to be a very productive profile. Carlos, who you got? Uh, I'm between two college players here. I think I'll just take Spencer Jones because I know Jeff will approve of this pick. He's a big fan of him as well. But I, I think there are several college players who right now, if the draft was redone, they'd go significantly higher. I think we've talked about Dalton Rushing being one. I think Spencer Jones is one. And I think Zach Neto is another one who just really, all three of these players really performed well in pro ball. Spencer Jones I think most teams had him slightly outside of the first round entering the draft because he really had the one platform season with Vanderbilt in 2022. And outside of that, his performance was just kind of okay. Everyone loved the athlete and the raw tools, but we were kind of waiting to see it happen. He had a great year with Vanderbilt, but even with that great year, I know a lot of teams were concerned about the swing and miss, the overall strikeout rate. If you look back at the track record of college players who have a strikeout rate over about 23% or so, it's not a great, uh, it's not a great, you don't have great results for that player profile. The contact ability, the zone control that he showed in his pro debut was significantly better than I expected it to be. And he's a guy who also is a legitimate outlier athlete. And I think that term, an outlier athlete, kind of gets thrown around. But there was a really good Loden Sports article going through why he is a legitimate outlier athlete, a guy who is six foot six, six foot seven. I don't know exactly what the height is, but somewhere around there, six foot seven, uh, Jeff's telling me, who hits the ball as hard as he does, who has that power, who runs as fast as he does, who moves as well. You just don't see players that big who have that combination of speed and raw power. And now we're seeing that the skills at the plate might be better than we were concerned they could be. I, I think he's a guy who could really blow up. And I understand why we don't have him on now. Um, but if he performs a little bit more, uh, over an extended period of time against better pitching, um, his upside is pretty tremendous. It's funny. I think back to a high school game I went to, Lacosta Canyon versus Eastlake. Spencer Jones was on the mound for LCC. Marcelo Mayer was playing shortstop for Eastlake. Keone Cavaco was playing third base for Eastlake. Grant Holman was on you the mound for Eastlake. Too, Kyle. <laughs> no, I know, but just saying, like, a lot of guys are in pro ball. But, yeah, no, Spencer Jones, Marcelo Mayer. And Spencer Jones stood out to me that day. He was a junior. He was a pitcher. It was pretty spectacular. And it's cool to see him blossom. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mentioned him earlier, Dalton Rushing. I think, again, you know, he was an ACC guy feasting on low A competition, and the Cal League pitching was horrendous last year. And by the time he got there, it was the leftovers. All the good players have been promoted. So just want to see him continue to do it at high against age-appropriate competition based off everything I saw, the swing, the plate discipline, everything. I think he will. Um, but thinking someone will versus them doing it are two different things. He's uh, he's a really, really good hitter. I think he's going to fly up this year. And, you know, I kind of have a group of D-backs. Um, I think Davison De Los Santos, he got pushed up aggressively last year. I think kind of going back this year to those levels is going to be a lot better. There's more natural hit in there than we saw once it got to the upper levels. Again, he was facing guys way older than he was uh, to go with massive power. And then behind him, Ryan Nelson, Dre Jamison, Blake Walston. I, I think pretty highly of all these guys. I think all these guys have a case to be on the top 100. Most of them have been at one point or another. So, um, you know, sticking to my brand here, picking, you know, West Division teams. But Dalton rushing with the Dodgers and that that quartet of D-backs, I think all of them have a, a real 
you know, a real chance to be on the top 100 at some point this this year and then and then have the major league careers worthy of a top 100 prospect, which ultimately is what we're trying to measure with this. All right, guys, as we wrap up here, uh, going uh, on an hour and 40 minutes, any final thoughts? JJ, we'll start with you. We'll keep it quick. I would just say thank you all subscribers. I, I like to do this at this time because we've had a, a day. We've, we have a lot of new new. Uh, members of that club today we always do on top 100 day and and thank you all for the ones we did and i would say with that that uh basically i again i greatly appreciate it we all greatly appreciate it the only reason we can do this is because people subscribe we are a you are our patrons we are a subscriber-based business and so i know that we get every time we put out the top 100 why is this behind a paywall because we want to provide value for those of us, those of you who financially support us. If you haven't joined, check it out, baseballamerica.com slash store. You can join the club. We had a chat today for our subscribers. We're going to be producing a ton more content on the top 100 for our subscribers because you all are the ones that we do this for because you all are the ones that allow us to do this. So thank you, subscribers. Jeff and Carlos, any final thoughts? I think just mic drop after what JJ said. I, <laughs> I echo everything he said. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody that, you know, likes, subscribes, listens, uh, you know, all, all the support that we get um, on and off the site is tremendous. Really appreciate it. Yep. Agreed. You guys said it really well. All right, everyone. Well, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Whatever platform you're listening, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach out to any of us via email, firstname.lastname at baseballamerica.com, uh, on Twitter, at Kyle A. Glazer, at JJCoop36, at Jeff Ponce BA, at Carlos A. Colazzo. We love talking baseball. We love interacting with all of you, and we're happy to. Uh, thank you for listening to another edition of the BA Podcast. It was a lot of fun putting together the 2023 Top 100 Prospects. Uh, keep it here, and we look forward to uh, continuing to talk more prospects with you in the future. Have a good one, everybody. Mm-hmm.